If you have your Bible, flip over to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Book of Jonah, chapter 4, as we wrap up our series in this book. I'm thankful for Pastor Craig preaching uh, last week, did a phenomenal job uh, with chapter 3. Uh, just an encouraging word, a challenging word. Um, it's good for me to have a Sunday to, uh, to work on the ministry instead of in the ministry. It's good to, uh, to, to sit under the preaching of God's word. But I'm thankful to be back uh, here with you today in chapter 4. Uh, my, my parents are here this morning. They're sitting over here to this side. They came to visit for the weekend. And uh, my dad and I used to uh, do quite a bit of outdoor stuff together. When I was a kid, we were always either hunting or fishing or, or somewhere outdoors when I was a kid. And uh, maybe one of my regrets in life is that I don't get to do that as much with my son as we got to do it together as uh, kids. Uh, but a year ago or so, uh, my son and I, Cade, he's, he's nine now, he was eight then, we got a chance to go hunting together. Um, and, and again, not something I get to do a ton, wish we could do it more. Uh, but it's, it's a fun thing if you've never done that. Some of you guys are like all into that. Some of you guys are like, whoa, this is weird stuff. Just hang with me for the story, okay? Uh, we're sitting in the deer stand. You have to get up before dawn. And so we're in the stand looking out over the field before the sun comes up. And my son's excited. Uh, he's, he's fired up. Uh, we, he's decked out in his camo that you don't need because you're up in a tree and you're in a blind. But it's, it's part of the experience. Um, and, and he's looking out as the sun's coming up. And it's, there's, there's a term called like shooting light when it's light enough that you can see and actually begin to hunt. It, we're not there yet, but, but my son Cade's looking out and he goes, Dad, I see a deer. Like, oh, this is exciting, right? It's, it's happening. And I said, where, where do you see him? And so he points, you know, over in this area. And I go, I don't know. I don't think so, son. But let's, let's wait as the sun comes up and see what, what happens. And as the sun comes up, he's getting more and more excited. He's, he's like, Dad, there's one right there. I can see him. There he is. If you've ever been hunting, you know what's happening here, right? So you, you, this, this, there's not a deer there. Deer, in general, don't stand still for 35 minutes straight and not move a muscle, right? And it took my son a long time to come to grips with the fact that what he was seeing was not an eight-point trophy buck, but instead a brown bush with some branches that went up like that. And as the light kind of comes over the area, he begins to see more clearly what he's looking at, and then he begins to interact with it rightly, namely not treating it as something to shoot, but something to look away from and look elsewhere. In our text today, in Jonah chapter 4, uh, we're going to talk about seeing things rightly, with clear vision and the right perspective, uh, because Jonah's perspective on what's going on here is wrong. He's misreading the situation in a couple of ways, and he's making some mistakes that you and I are prone to make as well, as we look at the world around us. And so we're going to dive into Jonah chapter 4, and I think we'll see the mistakes Jonah's making. There's two of them, and I think we'll see how we can be tempted to make those same mistakes and how it hurts our ability to reach those around us for Jesus. And so that's where we're headed uh, this morning. So turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. The Bible says this. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said? When I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east, sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. 
and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. And the Lord appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God had appointed a worm that attacked the plant and so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah replied, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Jonah. We thank you that this gives us a window into who you are and to who we are. Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that it would function as a mirror today, that we might see ourselves clearly, and then, God, that it would focus as a telescope so we might see you clearly. And as we see who we are and who we are, as we see who you are, Lord, would you give us great love and gratitude for what you've done for us? And so would you speak to us through your word, encourage us, challenge us, draw us near, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's where we are in the story. Let's catch up, right, verses one, or chapters one through three, right? And so God has sent this prophet Jonah. He said, hey, listen, I've got a message I need you to deliver. I need you to go to these people in Nineveh, and I need you to proclaim that judgment is coming if they don't repent and turn from their ways. Jonah doesn't want to do that. Just as Jonah said here, he's worried that it might actually work, and so he says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go uh, preach to those people. I want them to get the judgment that's coming their way. And so instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah goes to Tarshish, which is a coastal city, and he gets on a boat to try to run as far away as he can from his mission and from his God. He hides down on the bottom of the boat. Waves come, crash, and basically the sailors realize, oh man, Jonah's the problem. So they throw Jonah overboard. And as Jonah's flailing around in the ocean, He cries out to God for help. He cries out to God for mercy. And God answers his prayer. He answers it through a fish. He sends a giant fish to swallow Jonah up. Jonah recognizes what's happened. He prays a prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving. He says, thanks God for saving me, even with this stinky fish. And then this stinky fish says, I got a plan for you. And he vomits Jonah out back on the shore. And God comes to him a second time and says, hey, I need you to go to Nineveh now. So Jonah finally goes, fine, right? You know your kids when they finally give up? Fine. That's what Jonah does. That's how I envision it. And Jonah makes the trek to Nineveh. And he preaches to the city of Nineveh. And he declares the bare minimum that God would have him declare. And lo and behold, the city and its leaders, they repent. And they turn from their sin. They mourn in sackcloth and ashes. They cry out to God for deliverance. And God does. God delivers them. He holds off on the judgment that was coming, and he does not do it. That's how chapter 3 ends in verse 10. And then we get to today, and we get Jonah's temper tantrum. That's what we've got here, basically, is Jonah pitching a fit because 
God was kind and merciful to the people of Nineveh. He's mad because they've repented. Jonah knew God's nature. He says so here in verse two that he's like, God, I know you would do that. I knew you were merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew you were going to do this. So he goes out and sits on a hill. He's hoping, hoping maybe, just maybe, God will still go through with it. And he's watching. And as he's watching, God sends a plant to give him shade, just a, just a little gift from God. He gives Jonah some shade to protect him from the sun. Jonah loves the plant. He's thankful for it. And the next day, God takes it away. And Jonah's angry about it. He's mad about it. And Jonah uses, or God uses this object lesson to tell Jonah the truth, that he's wrong. Jonah, God really answers the question for Jonah. He's wrong to be angry about this. And instead, God is right to have compassion and mercy upon these 120,000 people in this city. The story ends with the strangest line ever, probably. It says, uh, he says, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, and also much cattle. We wanted to make sure we noticed the cows. And that's how the story ends. What's interesting is we don't find out how Jonah takes the lesson, do we? There's no, there's no, and Jonah finally gets it, and he marched off a happy prophet and everything. We don't get this resolution. God just says, here's the lesson, Jonah, that I'm trying to teach you. And I think the reason God leaves out Jonah's response, because this story, despite it having Jonah for a title and Jonah being a central character, the story is not about Jonah. The story is about God and his love and his grace and his mercy. And that's the message that the text wants to leave us with is God's kindness and mercy to people who do not deserve it. And this entire book, this entire story of Jonah, all four chapters, the Bible is trying to show us Jonah's uh, hypocrisy. They're trying to show us the irony of his situation. Here's a guy who received mercy when he was at sea, but he wouldn't extend it to the Ninevites. And he pities a plant he know, he's known for a day, but has no pity on a people with souls and families and lives. And God is trying to stir up a heart of mercy for the lost in the people of Israel and now for the people of us with this story. And so the main idea, I think that all of Jonah is getting at for sure, but definitely this chapter, is that recipients of God's mercy give mercy freely. Recipients of God's mercy give mercy freely. Jonah is angry twice here. The Bible says he's angry. God asks, is that anger justified? The answer is, of course, no. And when someone's angry, right, what do we say of that person? You'll say, oh, he's seeing red, right? Have you ever said that or heard that said? What do we mean by that? They're seeing red. It means their vision is clouded. It means they're not seeing things correctly. They're overcome by their anger, and so their perspective is skewed. There are two ways that Jonah's anger is skewing his judgment, and if Jonah fixes these, he becomes the prophet that God wants him to be. And the first thing Jonah's got to fix is Jonah has to see himself clearly. Jonah needs to see himself clearly. He's not seeing himself rightly in this text. In order for Jonah to justify his mercy for me and not for thee attitude, he's got to think he's better than the Ninevites, doesn't he? I mean, he, he, he likely thinks he's better than the Ninevites. And I don't think Jonah thinks he's not a sinner. Jonah doesn't think necessarily that he's perfect. But I do think Jonah thinks his sin isn't as bad as their sin. And I know that's not something you've ever thought before. But I think that's what's going on in Jonah's mind here. Believing that he's not as bad a sinner as someone else allows him to believe 
that he deserves mercy, but they do not. It allows him to believe that their sin is worse than my sin. Sure, I've messed up, but they've really messed up, God. And so, yes, I understand why you might save me from this. See, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but not that bad. But God, you can't go so far as to save them, can you? And there's a reality here. I don't want to I don't want to muddy the waters here on how sin works. Like there's a, there's a reality at play that different sins have different consequences, right? Different sins have different consequences. The stakes are higher in some sins than they are for others. But all sin has the same effect on our relationship with God. All sin separates us from God. Sin's a Bible word that just means breaking God's laws. Every time that we sin, we do things our way instead of God's way. It creates a separation between us in God. Some sins do more damage. Murder or adultery perhaps does, has more collateral damage than maybe gossip or laziness might have. But all of those sins, just the same, separate us from God. But I think even perhaps more than Jonah thinking his sins aren't as bad as their sins, I wonder if Jonah doesn't think that because he's an Israelite or one of God's chosen people, and the Ninevites are not. They're part of the Assyrian nation, which are wicked and outside of God's people. I wonder if that's not factoring into his equation a little bit. I wonder if Jonah's not thinking, well, I'm, I'm a religious person. I'm a part of God's chosen people, and so I deserve mercy because I'm one of his. And they don't deserve mercy because they're on the outside. Basically, I'm more deserving of God's love and mercy because of my religious affiliation. And if that's what he's thinking, he's forgetting a pretty important point about how the Israelites became God's chosen people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, God explains why he chose them. This is what he says. Listen, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, this is why, though. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people than the Lord set his love on you or chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers. See, what God is explaining is that Israel wasn't chosen because they were awesome. Israel wasn't chosen because they were big. They certainly weren't chosen because their character and their conduct and their gift, skills, and ability. They were kind of the smallest nation. They were chosen because God loves them. That's it. Unmerited favor, unearned grace is how the people of Israel became God's chosen people. And so saying, I deserve God's mercy because I'm a part of God's chosen people is crazy because God chose you not because you were worth anything, but instead to show how amazing God is. And this is a common problem that religious people, I'm talking to me now, I'm talking to some of you, probably not all of you, this is a common problem with religious people. They start to think that they're better than other people, more deserving of love, because they're a part of a faith family. You ever experienced that? Religious people think they're better than you, better than other people, better than outsiders. Here's how it happens. God, in his kindness and mercy towards us, he saves us. He rescues us. He invites us into his family. And when we start following God, we start living the way God calls us to live, right? That's a natural response. We've talked about that many times. That's how it ought to work. And what happens is your life begins to change, doesn't it? And you know this from when you first started following Jesus. Life got better. Things fell into place. All of a sudden you had purpose. And all of a sudden the things that used to give you joy no longer gave you joy. And, uh, and from the world's perspective, you cleaned up your life, right? But you know that God really cleaned up your life. 
But over time, we begin, we begin to forget that part, that God is the one who did it. And we begin to look at our lives and how we, while we're not perfect, we're generally better than these people over here. And we begin to think, man, that must mean I'm pretty, I'm pretty awesome. Look what I've done. Look at how much better my life is than these non-religious people. Look at the things I don't do that they do. Look at the things I do do that they don't do, but should be doing. They begin to forget what started all of it. They begin to think they're in God's family because of their righteousness, when in reality, every religious person or every person who's in the family of God is there because of God's mercy. The grace of God is the core principle of our faith, and when we replace that core with our own righteousness, things start to rot. Things start to stink. This is why Jesus spent so much of his time rebuking the Pharisees. There was a rot within them. Matthew 23, verses 25 to 26 says, Woe to you, which means warning to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He said, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Pharisees were so self-centered that they believed that they were better than those around them because of the fact that their exterior looked clean. But Jesus warns them, saying that your heart is not clean. And that's where you need to begin. So what does it look like for us when we don't see ourselves clearly, we begin to think we're more deserving of God's mercy than other people? It looks like whitewashing our own sins sometimes, but amplifying other people's sins. You ever done that before? We make excuses for what we do, but we amplify what other people do. We may have no compassion for the drug addict that we meet or hear about or see on the street. All the while, we can't unwind from a long day without a drink. We might rail against transgenderism or some other sexual deviancy or sin. All the while, church people nursing a pornography addiction. We amplify other people's sins while whitewashing our own. We might turn our nose up at somebody with a, a sailor's mouth, as they say, who uses a lot of profanity and can't control their tongue. And in the next breath, slander a fellow Christian. There's something about us when we lose this core of God's mercy in our life, when we lose our focus on God's grace to us that makes us amplify other people's sins while excusing our own. And if you're not a Christian here today, can I apologize for if we've done that to you or if Christians at large have done that to you? I'm sorry for the ways that we amplify other sins while whitewashing our own. I'm not sorry that God has a law and a standard by which he calls us to live. It's right and it's good, and it's for our benefit, and we'll keep talking about it. But I am sorry that we've selectively applied that law and standard when it's convenient for us. Do we really think that we're better than anyone? The basic truth of the gospel that we must get just to know Jesus in the first place, and certainly if we're going to be ambassadors for him, is this. Romans 3, 22 and 23, Paul says, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Paul says there's no distinction, he means between religious people and not religious people. All of us are fallen, broken sinners in need of a Savior. 
when I was in high school, I played football. I think I've told you that before. And when I was first starting out in football, I had dreams of who I might be, kind of what position I might play. And if you're not familiar with the sport, uh, your speed, how fast you are, is largely what determines your position. I mean, there's some other factors for sure, but the really fast guys, shocker here, they play running back, right? Or they play wide receiver, or they play defensive back. And then there's the medium fast guys, right? These are guys that are not fast, they're not slow, they're somewhere in between. These guys play linebacker, tight end, right? Defensive end, something like that. Those are the positions for the medium fast guys. <clears throat> then there's the slow guys, okay? Those guys play offensive line. The nickname for the offensive line is the hogs, right? Like nobody's aspiring to be that. And when I was, you know, preparing to play and going through tryouts and all of these things and kind of the initial practices, it came time for them to test our 40 speed, our 40, the 40 yard dash. And it's just what it sounds like. You run 40 yards as fast as you can and they time it, okay? Like the fastest football players there are, they run like 4.2, 4.2 is crazy. 4.3, 4.3 seconds, they can run 40 yards. The medium guys, they run it in like, they run it in like 4.8, 4.9, sometimes 5.0, this is at college level probably. And the slow guys, they're like 5.5, 5.6, 5.7. And I've run, I've practiced these, right? You know, when you're running, you feel like you're moving fast. And so I'm thinking, I'm probably one of the medium fast guys out here. So I get out there, I run my little, my little sprint, and I'm cruising, a perfect form. You know, I feel like, you know, a sprinter out there in the Olympics. I can feel the wind blowing through my face. I'm, I can't wait, across the line, I can't wait to hear my score. Coach looks at the stopwatch, and he goes, 6.0. Son, you're an offensive lineman. <laughs> I was living in a fantasy world where I saw myself as way better than I really was, and I had to be faced with the harsh truth of that stopwatch. I was nowhere near as good or as fast or as quick as I thought I was. And I think for a lot of us as Christians, what we need every once in a while, especially if we've been a Christian for a while, this is true for everybody, but especially those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while, we need the Bible to function as that stopwatch for us. For God to hold it up to us and say, you're not as great as you think you are. You're seeing yourself wrongly. It's time to see yourself clearly. And if we're going to be in right relationship with God, if we're truly going to reach those far from Jesus, then we must begin by seeing ourselves rightly. Jonah hated the Ninevites, and he hated them because he thought their sin was worse than his. He thought he was here, they were there. And what God is trying to show him, Jonah, is you guys are all sinners. You guys are all wicked, and I love all of you. And that brings us to the second thing that we've got to see. We've got to see God rightly. Jonah needed to see God rightly, and so do we. Not only is he not seeing himself correctly, he's not seeing God correctly. And just as Jonah could not see the depths of his own sin, he also could not see the depths of God's mercy. This is ironic because the whole book is ironic. It's meant to be a, an ironic story. But in our chapter particularly, in verse 2, Jonah says how merciful and gracious and kind is God is, right? Verse 2, he says, he, says he prayed, uh, prayed to the Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to leave. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And I knew you would relent from this disaster. Jonah knew these truths about God. This was not, it's not like he was uninformed. Jonah's a prophet. He, God speaks to him directly. God, Jonah knows God, but he doesn't know him well enough. 
He doesn't know him deep enough. He doesn't know him fully enough to see that God could possibly have mercy on the people of Nineveh. Jonah knew God was gracious, but he didn't know how gracious he was. He couldn't imagine that God would give a future to these people who would use that future then to harm the people of Israel. That's too far for Jonah. Jonah couldn't fathom it. He knows God is merciful, but he can't imagine God would be so merciful to these people who deserved to be killed on the spot. Jonah knew God was slow to anger, but he couldn't comprehend God being this patient with this people. How could you give these people a second chance? Jonah knew God is abounding in love. He's experienced himself. But he didn't know just how much God loved the people of Nineveh, that he would do everything he could to spare them. In fact, because Jonah doesn't understand the depths of the mercy of God, he gets angry when he sees it. He's essentially saying, God, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. Reaching this people, saving these people, turning your mercy towards these people is too much. Jonah thinks that God should be merciful, but not this far, God. What Jonah needed to see and what we must also see is that there is no limit to the mercy of God. God loves the lost so much that he's willing to send his son, Jesus, to a cross to save them. We cannot fathom what it costs God to reach the lost, to reach us. He's willing to do this knowing full well that after God extends mercy to people, they will abuse that mercy and still turn from him. We can't, we can't fathom it. We're conditional people. We're like, hey, if, if I know you're going to screw this up, there's no way I'm going to give it to you, right? This makes sense. God's going, I know for sure you're going to screw this up, but I'm going to offer you mercy anyways. It's natural for us to think that eventually God's going to say enough is enough. You guys have been too far gone. You've sinned too many times. You've broken too many rules. You're too bad. You're too rebellious. You're too far gone. You're too whatever. But he never does. Reflecting on this idea, the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans about God's endless mercy He's introducing the idea in Romans chapter 7, and he's basically saying, hey, I keep doing the wrong thing. No matter how hard I try, I mess it up. I even think in my head I want to do the right thing, and then I do with my body the wrong thing, he says. I am a total screw-up. And he gets to this place of almost exasperation at the end of chapter 7 of the book of Romans, and he writes this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? It's a question he asks. He goes, Lord, I'm wretched. The worst word you can think of to describe yourself. He's a wretched man than I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who. That's who will save us from this body of death. When you realize these two things, that we are truly wretched, sinners, in need of a Savior, and God really does do all that he can to save us, then we're starting to see things clearly. In his letter to the Ephesians, written about five years or so after his letter to the Romans, so these truths are starting to sink into Paul's heart, I would imagine even more so, he prays this prayer for the church at Ephesus. He says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, listen to this, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height 
and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul says, my, my desire for you as you grow in your faith is not that you think you become better than everybody else, not to think that you're uh, above other people, but that you realize more and more and more the depth of God's mercy towards you. And that God would just give, expand your mind to the point to be able to hold some of it in there because it's so mind-blowing how merciful God would be to us. I'm a country music fan. I make no apologies for that. I'm sorry for the redneck theme to my illustrations the past few weeks. I'll try to find different, maybe a, a rock illustration here in the future, a rap or something, I don't know. But the king of country music, his name is George, theologian George Strait. One of his more than 50 number one hits is called Love Without End, Amen. Tells the story of a kid who's in trouble. He gets in a fight at school. And he, he, gets, he gets in a fight, he gets in trouble for that fight, and he comes home having to face his dad, and he's scared, right? We've all been there, right? We know we're going to face our parents, and we're not sure how it's going to go. And so he's rehearsing how he's going to make excuses for what happened before he gives the speech to his dad. And his dad responds to his son's disobedience and wrong with this, this kind of chorus of the song. He says, let me tell you a secret about a father's love. It's a secret that my dad said was just between us. He said, daddies don't just love their children every now and then, but it's a love without end. Amen. The song progresses as a good country song does in the stories of life, and it ends with the same man standing before the pearly gates. And this is what he says. He says, last night I dreamed I died, and I stood outside those pearly gates, when suddenly I realized there must be some mistake. He says, if they know half the things I've done, they'll never let me in. The reality is, church, God knows all the things we've done. And he lets us in. Right. Not because we're good, but because Jesus paid all the price for us. We get heaven, not because we're righteous, not because we're holy, not because we cleaned ourselves up but because God went and snatched us out of the depths and set his love upon us. We've got to see God clearly, church. If we're going to be the ambassadors that God has called us to be, we've got to really believe in the depths of our soul that there is no end to his mercy. He knows all that we've done, but because of all that Jesus has done, we still get heaven. This is what he's trying to teach Jonah here. It's what we've got to learn as well. Richard Sibbs, he's a theologian, Anglican theologian from the turn of the 17th century. He wrote a book called The Bruised Reed, which is just a, uh, a treatise on how God cares for sinners, broken people. The most famous line in that book is this. He says, we have this for a foundation truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. I need God's mercy to be endless. I need it to never run out. I need it, like Lamentations chapter 3 says, to be new every single morning. Because I fail every single day. Church, when our vision comes into focus and we begin to see just how desperate we are without God and just how 
far God's willing to go to save us. We become people of mercy who give it freely. And that's our final thing. We've got to be a church of people, Christians, who give mercy freely. Like Jonah, we've been given a message to proclaim, a message to people who need it desperately, a message to people whose sins have earned judgment, a message of people who, kind of like the people in our story, don't know their right hand from their left. It's just a way of saying they're lost. God has compassion on them because they're lost. And if we're going to be effective gospel ambassadors, we've got to actually understand the gospel. And the gospel tells us that we are broken people who are deserving of condemnation from God. But God, because of his grace, his mercy, his patience, and his love, has sent his son Jesus to rescue us. Jesus, God in the flesh, was killed in our place on a cross that we deserved to be on so that we could be shown mercy. And he rose from the dead three days later so that we could have eternal life. And because God is patient, he waits patiently for us to receive his love that he sends in Christ. And then once we do, once we put our faith in that Jesus, God then sends us. God sends us, like he sent Jonah, to proclaim that good news to a world who desperately needs it. And understanding how bad we were and how merciful God was to us changes the tone of our gospel proclamation, doesn't it? There's one way to proclaim the gospel to people, the good news to people, where you say, hey, listen, I've, I've got it all together here, and I've noticed that you don't. So let me tell you about Jesus who can fix you like he's fixed me. There's another way of sharing the gospel that says, I was broken without hope, and I didn't deserve it, I didn't earn it, but God saved me. Do you know that Jesus? Both true, but when you really get how far you really are and were from God and how kind and merciful God really was to you, it changes the tone and tenor of our proclamation. Church, God has given us a mission to proclaim the good news. Let's go not as people who have it all together, but as sinners who've been given incredible mercy. And so as we close, just a couple of questions. Number one, do you know that you are a sinner? It's a hard truth to come to grips with, but it's one, it's vital. Before you can proceed with anything else meaningful in life, you've got to come to grips with the fact that you are a sinner deserving of judgment. You have broken God's laws, and you stand condemned before him. Some of us struggle to remember just how hopeless we are. Some, some people are, are trying not to remember it. I want to tell you, I want to hold the stopwatch up to you if I can, and say that you are hopeless without Jesus. All of us either were or are hopeless without Jesus. Next question I have is, do you know that God's mercy is enough to cover all of your sin? Do you know that God's mercy is enough to cover all of your sin? I'm speaking first to the person who has not put their faith in Jesus. Perhaps you think you're too far gone for Jesus to save you. Let me tell you, if he can save the Ninevites, he can save you. There is no such thing as too far gone for Jesus. Some people like to think, well, I'll clean myself up a bit. I'll take a few steps forward. I'll kind of wash up a little bit, and then I'll go to God and ask him to save me. No. God says, I'm coming all the way to you. All you've got to do is go, yes, I need you, Lord. And so if you haven't made that decision, today is the day for you. But Christian in the room, do you know that God's mercy is enough for you as well? 
Like Paul, do you struggle to do the right thing even when you know you should, you still find yourself doing the wrong thing and you do it over and over again and you can't figure out why you're not breaking the cycle? Have you gotten to the point where you go, wretched person that I am? Even as a believer in Jesus, the Bible wants you to know Jesus has enough mercy for you too. I want to encourage you to test him in that. Test him. Turn to God. Confess your sin, the Bible says, and he will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All that he asks is that you own up to it and say, I can't fix it, Lord, will you? And then, once those things are settled, church, has God called you to proclaim these two truths to someone in your life? Jonah sent, was sent by God to proclaim this message in, in the same way all of us are sent by God to proclaim the same truth. That we are hopeless without God, but God has made a way through Christ. Who is it in your life that God is sending you to, that God has sovereignly placed in your path that you might share this with? I want to encourage you to pray this week for the courage to speak, to share this good news with people, because like the Ninevites, they have no hope apart from Christ, and God has given you to them as a lifeline. We sang before this sermon about the goodness of God and how his goodness is running after us. It's running after us. That's what God's doing here to the Ninevites. It's what God's doing even to Jonah. It's what God is doing to us this morning. If you're a Christian, you've been around church for a while. I haven't said anything new to you today, right? Nobody's going to walk away. If you've been to church more than like three times, you're going, yep, knew all that stuff. But like Jonah, who knew that God was gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, he needed to be reminded of how deep God was in those things, how deep his mercy was, his grace was. And so too, we gather here on Sundays to be reminded of that same truth. And I pray as we go from this place that we'll live that out, live as people with a weight lifted off of our shoulders, with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and a message for the world around us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of Jonah. I thank you for your patience with him. And I thank you that you show that same patience to us, that you are slow to anger, that you hold off judgment until we can repent and turn to you, God. I want to pray for those in this room today who are far from you, who do not know you, haven't put their faith in you. Lord, would today be the day of repentance? And Lord, for those of us who are walking with you, but maybe are struggling to be the people that you called us to be, would you remind us of your grace and mercy anew this morning? And with that stir up joy and gratitude in our hearts that causes us to live as joy-filled messengers of the gospel. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for Jesus dying on a cross for our sins. Thank you for the fact that you're coming back to make all things right again. And until that day, help us to live on mission for you. In Jesus' name, amen.